Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. Would you please welcome uh, Lockie Walker as he brings us the message today. Thank you. You haven't heard it yet. (laughs) So continuing on Apologetics 101, which uh, was introduced last week, and today we're looking at how do I know the Bible is true? So apologetics, again, is not, we're not apologising for our faith as such. We're giving the reasons for why we believe, aren't we? How do we know our Bible is true? It's an ancient book, isn't it? Written through time by many authors. and records many historical events of, and many observations about God's interactions with people, with kingdoms. And some of those interactions are outrageously miraculous and unexplainable, aren't they? Some people know it's true because they just know, don't they? They might have had a personal experience of how... You might have had a personal experience of how God has acted in your life. You know that it's possible. Maybe you know the weight's lifted when sin's forgiven in your life. Maybe you've experienced a miraculous healing... So when you read the Bible, you go, well, of course, I know. Some people believe in in faith that it's true, much the same way that when we turn the lights on with the flick of the switch, we expect them to turn on. And there's an element where we just believe, as in um, John 20, 29, and Jesus told them, because you've seen me, you have believed, But blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. So a lot of those old stories, every story in the Bible, we haven't seen personally, have we? But we believe because it's in the Bible, and it's been handed down and recommended by faithful people. So our faith can be strengthened when we look more deeply into the truth of the Bible. To help us in this, so I'm going to look at the evidence for historical accuracy, take a look at the eyewitness accounts, and look at how Jesus used the Word of God. So I'll try and start with what might be the easiest stuff, the evidence for historical accuracy. And first off, I'm going to look at some archaeology stuff. The Times of Israel published a great obituary for a lady by the name of Dr. Elliot Mazar. Hopefully I pronounced her name correctly. She was a field archaeologist, a scholar, and a lecturer at the Hebrew University's Institute of Archaeology in Jerusalem. And she unearthed several clay seals, otherwise known as a bulla, which were effectively the business cards of the day. And one of these, apparently, is clearly marked King Hezekiah. So the quote is, in, at the 2018 King David Hotel event, Mazar said, the identification of the seal impression of King Hezekiah is very certain, beyond any shadow of a doubt. And you can read it for yourself. And maybe if you were Hebrew or Jewish, you could. It says, belonging to King Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, King of Judah. 
This is an actual artifact that I've dug up in Jerusalem. And there's been more. Another one was the name Jehukel, who King Zedekiah sent Jehukel to the prophet Jeremiah to pray for the people. Have I got that? So the name's in yellow. And there's a, a, another one again, Gedaliah, son of Peshur, who was also recorded in Jeremiah. So those names have been found on these clay seals. And that's just the beginning of the stuff they've found. And I encourage you, if you're interested, go look up the, um, the writings of these archaeologists and see what they've found. Evidence of structures, cities, is all beginning to um, grow um, along with these tablets that they've found. They're, they're always excavating in Jerusalem and finding uh, different buildings and walls and things that were constructed that are in the Bible. Now I'll move on a little bit to our Bible and literally copies of the Bible. This is my copy. It's one I've had for 30 years, I think. I got it when I was about 20 and it's a study Bible, so it's got notes from people smarter than I who have tried to explain the Bible and help us understand it. But as you can see, it's a little worse for wear, the spine's wearing out. Some of the pages um, are no longer part of it and I could take them and put them back as a <laughs> hopefully in the right spot. So they wear out and they need, the Bible needs copying. You need to replace it every so often so you've, you can read it still, don't you? Have you heard of a guy called Plato? He's pretty famous. Libraries and museums around the world have 250 fragments like this of his works. And most of them aren't original, they're copies, and they, most of them date from 100 AD. There's about four before that date, only four. And like my Bible, books wear out. That's a papyrus. Our books are paper or the older ones are parchment. And we need to keep printing new copies. And that's relatively easy these days, isn't it, with digital printing? You just press a button and just about off you go if the machine's all fueled up. Even 100 years ago, they had this printing-type stuff, and it didn't change. Once you had the plates, you just print, 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 and every copy came out exactly the same, and you could print thousands of copies. Before that, though, that's where the supply of books was more limited because it was tedious and expensive to make copies. You had to pay someone to write it by hand. And each book copied by hand, there's a possibility that you might miss something if you're tired or maybe your eyes aren't so good. <laughs> and the early New Testament was not copied by professional copiers back in the day. They might have had a good grasp of the concept of how to copy, but they weren't the pro-professionals. They were the early church, they were believers, new believers. They might have been fishermen or tax collectors or they might have been educated people with a good grasp of reading and writing. Imagine, I'll use, uh, who should I use? 
<laughs> Simon and Jared. Simon says, Jared, we need a new copy of the Bible. Can you make a copy of our old one? And, and then we've got you know, a new copy that's uh, readable and hasn't got missing pages and things like that. So Jared does that, and he does the best he can. He's got a um, Bachelor of Ministries or Theology, and he knows what he's on about. And then Simon reads it, and he checks it just to make sure that it compares with the old one. But you're still relying on two people, maybe more if you get more involved, to make sure it's correct. And this is what happened in the original copies of the Bible. And sometimes in different towns where they made their own copies, very slight differences would come as if they used different languages or had different teaching. Early Christianity was not a state religion and copies were not done by professional scribes. But once Emperor Constantine made Christianity the state religion, they had access to more resources and the professional scribes who had the time and the skills the professional skills to do those copies. These are some of the oops, <laughs> earlier copies of the Bible. The one on the left is known as Papyrus P66, which is a Gospel of John, almost a complete Gospel as we know it. And as you can see, it's a bit tatty around the edges, but all the words are there and they can read them. And this one here is the Codex Sinaiticus, which is the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, in Greek. It contains the Greek Septuagint, which was written before Christ, or copied before Christ into Greek, and the Greek New Testament. And that's, they both date what it says here, which has been covered up. They date from the 4th century AD, so in the 300s. So they're very early copies. And they're not the earliest. There are smaller fragments from this um, 200s, I believe, that you know match these as well. But these are whole Bibles, whole books from those times. So by comparing the various versions and discoveries of manuscripts, like I said, that date back to the second century, scholars have been able to determine that the message of Christ has not been altered through the successive centuries. And our copies today are the same as those ones. And that's what we want to hear, isn't it? (laughs) What about the Old Testament? That's much older though, isn't it? Some of it. Written through the centuries by different prophets. But even back then, Chronicles has the first reference to scribes, these copiers whose task it was to... They were virtually lawyers of the day, actually. So not just Bible copying, but they took dictation from kings and rulers and leaders of the day and made sure everything that was in writing was right. It almost reminds me, he claims the scribes like a family business and handed down from father to son and who knows if the mums and daughters were involved as well, doesn't say. Over the centuries their role changed a little bit but one of their main things that always 
uh, was constant, was their responsibility to carefully copy the Word of God. In Jesus' day, they were known as teachers of the law. And in fact, Ezra, who went back and helped rebuild the temple, he was also called a teacher of the law and a priest. But coming into Jesus' day, those priestly functions and the teacher of the law was separated more. So the priests were priests who knew the law very well and the teachers of the law were more the copiers who made sure what they had was the same as what they had before. Matthew 2.4, King Herod really wanted to know about this new king that was going to be born because he was a king and he didn't want to be supplanted. So he called together the best people of his day. And he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them where the Messiah was to be born. He knew as teachers of the law, as copiers of the law, the keepers of the word, that they, if anyone was going to know, they would, they would know. And of course they were able to tell him, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So together with the prophetic element of scripture that was highly regarded by the Hebrews, the word of God was also highly valued to provide guidance on how we live, how they lived and worship God. Since the defeat of Israel by Assyria and the defeat of Judah by Babylon, because they had neglected the law and they'd gone off, gone astray, worshipped by the gods, and God had said, well, I'll turn you over to these other powers for a while and maybe you'll come back to me. And they did come back, and when they came back, they were determined never to do that again, and the law became very central. It became almost so central, didn't it, that uh, as a guide, they didn't want to stray from it, and they said, well, you've got to do this and this, and then as humans, we try and find, well, try and find loopholes. So if it says, don't work on the Sabbath, well, that's fine, we don't work. But then some people say, well, this is not work, I've just got to do this. So the, the priests and the teachers of the law say, well, you can't do that, it's working. So they kept adding to the law, and in Jesus' time, this way, there's so many different regulations because they were trying to do the right thing, but it got too complicated. Into the post-Jesus time, between the 5th and the 10th century, there was a continuous of the tribal, the scribal tradition in three centres, Tiberias, Jerusalem and Babylon. There was a group called the Masorets, I don't know if you've heard of them, and they were responsible for keeping the Hebrew text alive, copied and accurate. With the Jewish temple destroyed in AD 70 and the Bar Kokhba revolt in AD 30, not 132, they revolted and then four years later, Rome came and kicked all the Jews out of Jerusalem. 
and there was a diaspora and they went all over the world and very few stayed behind in Israel. It was left to the devout few in the three centuries after that to keep the word of God in good, accurate condition. But they did the best they could and they used the best materials they could and they had um, these parchment instead of papyrus and that's much... It was unusual at the time and it lasted a lot longer. And late versions of this Masoretic text, as it's known, from the 10th century show virtually no discrepancy at all, almost the same as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are a 900-year earlier copy. So we can have confidence, again. There are all these different versions from different uh, towns, different peoples. Compared together, they tell the same message. So we can have confidence in our written word, but what about the message Is it just made up? Is it hearsay? What's it based on? One thing that's often stated by the writers is that they were either eyewitnesses, like Peter or Paul, or they interviewed eyewitnesses like Luke did. Timothy Keller is a Christian author and he writes in his book, The Reason for God, that most scholars now accept that the Gospels are written about 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death and Paul's letters just 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death. And that provides an outline, Paul's writings provides an outline of all the events of Jesus' life which is found in the Gospels, just written 15 to 25 years. This means that the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were circulating in the communities within the lifetimes of hundreds who had been present at the events of his ministry. An example of this is in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6. Have I got that? I hope you can read that. It says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So the fact that he's referring to the most who are still living, it's almost like he's saying, if you don't believe me, go and ask them. They'll tell you. They saw it. There's an American, J. Warner Wallace. He's a former homicide detective and also a professor in apologetics. He introduces his thoughts on eyewitnesses with this statement. He says, most eyewitnesses I've interviewed in my casework have had no idea they would later be called into a jury trial to testify about what they've heard or observed. As a result, they sometimes regret not paying better attention when they had the opportunity. But the disciples of Jesus had a distinct advantage over modern eyewitnesses in this regard. They were students of Jesus. Unlike the spontaneous, unprepared witnesses of a crime, the disciples were desperately attentive to the words and actions of Jesus. 
And I imagine their attention to detail became even more focused with each miraculous event. Your eyes would be open wide, wouldn't they? For this reason, the authors of the Gospels became excellent eyewitnesses and recognised the importance of their testimony very early. They had to listen, or maybe more accurately, they wanted to listen, because Jesus was just so different to the other teachers of the law. He taught them as one who had authority, might ring a bell. And Jesus had enough confidence to send them out in pairs, which is recorded in Mark 6 and 7, and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits. So they must have known what they were on about. They must have been good students and known what he taught them. And how much more would they understand and know about Jesus after his death and his resurrection and see at that stage how many Old Testament prophecies, writings in the Bible that he had fulfilled about the Messiah. Peter claimed to be an eyewitness as well. In 1 Peter 5 verse 1 he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So my point there is in yellow. He was an eyewitness. What he writes? He writes from experience. And 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Um, I'll get to that one in a minute. 1 John John writes as an eyewitness, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was the Father, and made manifest to us. Very experiential statement. And there's more, Luke chapter 1 And the writer of Hebrews claims to have talked with eyewitnesses in chapter 2. And lastly, and I think somewhat most convincingly, this verse in Mark. All four Gospels write about women who are eyewitnesses. And the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' um, resurrection, in fact. So this one in Mark 16, verses 1 to 10, I'm not going to read all of it, but it says, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. J. Warner Wallace again talks about this. He says, if this is a late added to the Bible fictional account, one might wonder why the authors didn't insert Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea in this role. They would certainly have made the account more credible in those days to those first hearers. Instead, the authors of the four Gospels describe women as the first eyewitnesses. And the agreement between the four Gospels makes the account all the more credible. 
In the cultural context of a male-led society, why would authors describe women as being the first witnesses? Which, again, according to that culture, wouldn't hold quite the same weight. Unless, in fact, they were the first eyewitnesses. So that fact gives us more confidence that what we read is accurate. And actually, if you compare all four Gospels, they don't have the exact same list of names, hence my uh, slowness in reading Salome, because I didn't write it in my notes. I had, I had others, because they think there's about five women who were there. The Gospel authors had plenty of t- years five, ten, to change, synchronise their stories if they wanted to and get them so they were all the same and had the same list of names. So the fact that they're different, that they stuck to their story, what they wanted to say, shows there was no deliberate collusion to change history. So now we breathe. (laughs) Are you getting all that? Is it good? I find it very encouraging. If the Bible is part eyewitness account then, as a people of God, if we don't believe, are we saying they're liars? Just a thought. (laughs) So, (laughs) if we believe the Bible is true and that Jesus was a real person and which is verified in other accounts of the day by historians such as the Jewish historian Josephus or the Roman historian Tacitus. Does it help us in knowing that Jesus also quoted the Bible many times in his ministry? Short list there. He quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 in Matthew 4.4. He quoted Deuteronomy 6.16 in Matthew 4.7. In Exodus 20, verse 13, in Matthew 5, 21. And of course, many more. But not only did he quote scripture in his teaching ministry, he claimed to fulfill it. And some count in his uh, lifetime in ministry, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies. But one of these he clearly enunciated himself in Luke chapter 4. 17 to 21, when he quotes Isaiah. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a pretty mighty quote On two levels, I think. Firstly, Jesus is connecting himself back into Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. He's saying, it's me. He's here now. 
And on the second level, he's saying, you know, that book of Isaiah, that's not made up, that's true. You can believe what it says. And same for all the other verses in Deuteronomy and Exodus. What's written there, that's true. So where does that leave us with the rest of the Old Testament? Accounts of Gideon's army of 300 defeating an opposition of 135,000 in Judges 6 and 7. True. Accounts of Samson, one man with renowned superhuman strength, was able to knock over the pillars of his stadium and defeat a Philistine enemy in Judges 16. A weakness in the pillars? Unlikely. True? What about the accounts of Moses in the book of Genesis? And where do we start with him? Ten plagues, crossing the Red Sea as if on dry land, living in the desert on the mysterious diet of manna? True? It's written. It's hard to believe all those accounts, isn't it? Sometimes we feel like Gideon when he said, when the angel came, he said, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? All the trouble from their enemies, that is. Where are all his wonders that the ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Where is he now? I suspect that Gideon and his father were believers in God, even though many had followed the gods of the Amorites. Verse 1 says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And when it says gave, I don't think, depends on your reading maybe, that God gave them, but I think he let the Midianites oppress them. Because when we run out of our resources, that's when we need to rely on God, isn't it? Do we think that all Israelites at that time were doing evil and worshipping the gods of the Amorites? Probably not all, but a lot, probably most. Enough for God to act, or not act as it were. Where does that leave us? Sometimes we can feel that God's not listening too, can't we? We pray for this or that, we pray for ourselves. We pray about world events. Wonder why God would let oppression continue. And that is a whole other sermon right there. (laughs) But suffice to say that we need to worship God. We need to cry out to God continually. We need to be desperate for God more than any other one thing. More than any other thing that would demand our attention more than God. Some good news. Is God listening? You might know this one from Jeremiah. 
I'm going for the short version. I know the plans I have for you. God has plans for all of us. That verse goes on to talk about God's plans for the Israelites back then. Our plans that God has for us might be different. But he has plans and he loves you, so they're good. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things God works for the good for those of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We're not saying things won't be hard or difficult things won't happen to us. But if we stay the course of loving God, God can work for good. And again, that might necessarily be our good or immediate good. It could be for someone else. And it certainly will be for the good of God's eternal purposes. Life is not just about abundance and blessing in the here and now. The prophets and the disciples showed us that, didn't they? Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, submit to God and he will make your path straight. And again, we might, know, might not know what straight is, but I trust that God's straight is better than our crooked, if, if you know what I mean. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What is, what is he talking about here? What is this promise that he seems slow to keep? Well, the rest of this chapter in Second Peter talks about Jesus' return. And by inference in verse 9 just there, which we read, when he returns, it'll be too late to repent. So he's waiting, he's patient. We repent now. Revelation 3, verses 1 to 22, but I'm going to read from 19. He says, Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest, repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. God is not far. God is near. He's waiting. He's patient. Verse 21, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What a promise. What an opportunity. I hope this little journey through History and the Bible has enabled you to understand and trust the Bible a little bit more. It is the Word of God and has been treasured as such for thousands of years. And hence the remarkable care that people have done to copy it and the accuracy with which it has been passed down to us. So is it true? 
In the end, it still requires a bit of faith to believe. Just like we trust the scholars to interpret the Hebrew on those tablets that says it is King Hezekiah. As always, the elders in the ministry are available if you want to know more. And there's plenty to know, isn't there? If you've never heard about Jesus, following Jesus, it's not complicated. It is life-changing. It does require commitment. And you will find out for yourself what it is to be eternally victorious if you make that decision. Thanks for listening. And yeah, I'm available as well if you want to talk more about it. Thank you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that we have such a record, such a book that declares your goodness, your love, your hope of a future with you, Lord. God, help us understand it when we read it. Would you guide us by your Holy Spirit? Would you transform our lives, Lord? Would you free us from the things that hinder, that hinder us from coming to you? Your word says you are near God. Help us know that. Help us sense that. And help us live that. We thank you, Lord, for all that you are to us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.